Hannah, just thinking, so you've not had an episode since, have you? No, no. I haven't had an episode for about 35 years, I would say. Oh, wow. Mm. So it's all sort of distant memory sort of thing for me. But my nursing training also helped me look after myself. Okay. And, of course, the team also looked after me. Mm-hmm. You know? I can remember, for instance, making three mistakes in a week. The first two were very insignificant. I can't remember what they were. Mm-hmm. The third one was the psychiatrist had, had reduced the amount of Depixol for somebody. And I forgot that week and I gave her the same dose. Okay. And my team manager said, Helen, it was a drug error. It was a drug error. You were to take a week off. And I said, no, but, you know, last week she was having a lot. Four yeah, ago yeah. she had that. Helen, it was a drug error. Are you going to take, this is your third error. Are you going to take a, a week oh. off? And I think it was a fortnight off. They looked after me. Yeah. They really did. Mm. So that was really Which helpful. was super. Mm. And then to be offered, when I, when I retired, because of the, the, the brought in a new computer system, which <laughs> would have driven me yeah. absolutely bonkers, to be offered by the last psychiatrist work as, what do you call it, a patient, um, pretend patient, what's the word? <laughs> Simulated. Simulated patient. <laughs> pretend. Yes. And also he offered Jeff and me the chance of working with the same final year students on how we together managed our That's my bipolar disorder. Mm. And we were paid for this, you know, it was yeah. wonderful. Yeah. So as we come back to <laughs> social support, Helen, I'm just thinking, so, and what about with your brother? I know um, it's quite recent, but thinking about sort of treatment and management and medication and all that sort of stuff. What, what's that been like for him? How's it being managed? Prior to him going into the hospital, the aides would come and make sure he would be taking his medication. So that was a nightmare, <laughs> to be honest. Mm. Because Why? when he started taking it, his mood obviously changed. So he was very much more low in energy, sleeping all day. I think he had put on a bit of weight as well to it. Basically, he was experiencing a lot of symptoms from the medication. And he did say at that time he wasn't hearing as much voices. But even still, it was still affecting him in other ways. Mm -hmm. And I think as he started taking it, he then just started to stop taking it. Mm -hmm. So he would kind of be sneaky about it so you know my mum would say have you taken your medication but like, yeah, yeah yeah it's fine but we clearly see he hasn't just yeah. by his behavior and mannerisms and all that kind of stuff and it got to the point where my mum she would even like crush it in like his drinks or anything oh, just okay. to make sure he took it yeah. and because you know there was no way he was going to take it and because my mum would monitor him taking it and then he would kind of I guess, when she leaves the room, spit mm. it out or hide yeah. it somewhere. Mm. And then I think it just got to that point where, I, you know, once he was admitted into hospital, that's when, obviously, by force, he has to take it. Because yeah. they have to keep him in for him to keep taking his medication. And, yeah, I think just in terms of the symptom side of things, it's just seeing his energy levels go mm-hmm. up and down. So, yeah, I mean, that's why I've always been a bit like... I guess when you mentioned earlier about the guilt stuff, Mm. I guess sometimes you feel kind of like when he tells you how much he hates taking it, you feel guilty because you want to be like, mum, maybe we should just stop letting, you know, Mm. know, let's not. And, you know, but then at the same time, you have to remember if he doesn't take it, then Mm. it's going to induce more of, you know. Does he say why? Like, why I don't want to take it or why I hate taking it? Does he have a reason yeah, for it? Yeah, like, he's always mentioning, like, it just, 
like messes up his mood. He says he's always tired. He just feels kind of like numb. Those right. are literally his words. He says he just feels numb. I remember there was a time where when he was on it, pretty much for the whole day just sleeping. Mm-hmm. And he'd be up at night, but then he'd kind of, you know, instead of, I guess, wanting to smoke or anything, he would just kind of be like, you know, he was like a songwriter, like writing oh, lyrics really? in yeah. his spare time. Mm-hmm. So he'd be like, being having a creative outlook but in itself that's kind of what his routine would be but then him being on the medic meds it would kind of pull him from that so it would just make him just feel oh i see numb so did you guys have an understanding of like where the psychosis was coming from so it was his 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 smoking as soon as he went to bournemouth that's the university that he mm-hmm. went to. That's when we. That's when he started smoking. Mm-hmm. And I think back then, naturally, everyone doesn't think of. And for me, any like one I know that had smoked, we would never think of the consequences of that. Yeah. And I think he himself didn't think about it like that. But I think it's a case where, when you see someone smoking constantly, and you know, you see them, I don't know where he gets it from at that time, but okay. you don't know what he's buying because it there's different kinds, I guess, in a yeah. way. And I just don't know if it's legit, do Exactly, you? yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of probably where it stems from because I can't think of anything else other than that, to be honest. So he, did you ever talk about his experience at uni and what that, whether he was struggling or if there was exams or I'm just yeah. hypothesising? Um, like, it was mostly, I guess, because he, that was his kind of like first time being sociable essentially because as I said his kind of life was just football and being at home football and being at home Mm -hmm. so that was his kind of like out of family experience and I think when you're kind of like young and you want to make new friends you just want to like fit in I guess there's that peer pressure element to it Mm. because he's very like he's such a people pleaser so he wants to be everyone's friend like if you meet him he's very much like how are you today yeah yeah you know he's very like bubbly and open yeah and I think he probably tried the most to be everyone's friend and I think the friends that he had at that time were quite into drugs drinking you know he would tell me sometimes like oh yeah this guy that I hang out with yeah he drinks he does this he does that I'm always like just keep your distance yeah yeah don't go don't you know don't get too involved because you just don't know and yeah I'd always ask him how you know uni is in general and he you know I think because of his smoking and his kind of like lifestyle he would always say that he's kind of behind he doesn't even know if he wants to pursue his degree that he was studying at the time and then that's when he dropped out and then that's when he kind of came back home and this is kind of like what has been this like spiral of post Mm. him you Mm. being coming from uni to now being with us at home Mm -hmm. and yeah. What yeah. about your family in terms of how they understand mental health? Was anybody in the family ever diagnosed with anything? To be honest with you, like my family, we don't, we don't, things like that we never speak about. Yeah. So to us, all this bipolar, depression, all this stuff, it didn't, big, it, it, yeah. yeah. I think it was a case where if my younger sister, my younger sister, she's the type to kind of Google stuff yeah. now and again. So she would always Google, oh, this and that based on someone's kind of mm. actions mm. and again that was always hush hush but I think when we started noticing how his behavior was mm. that's when we started googling it and wondering oh is this <laughs> is this right or not so yeah I think that kind of made us realize okay this might be 
relatable whatever so mm. yeah can I go back to the medication side of things for a moment yeah, just sure. to say that I'm so grateful for the medication because it gives me a ceiling and a floor I mean mm. we all go up and down in mood but because yeah. of my medication I know that I'm unlikely to go through that ceiling mm. and I'm unlikely to go through that floor mm. yeah for me feeling six out of ten feels very comfortable I feel I'm on top of things I'm mm. creative and all this sort of thing Jeff finds six out of ten a bit hard, a bit hard. <laughs> he's more comfortable with five five yeah. and a half you know yeah. if I'm down to four I'm starting to get worried you know but I okay. know that that it keeps me mm. in yeah. that in that secure range just thinking about that and thinking about the medication and I guess some of the differences between bipolar disorder and schizophrenia mm-hmm. and the different kind of maintenance therapies because they come in different forms usually for both. So, I mean, the best kind of mood stabiliser maintenance kind of therapy that we have in bipolar disorder is lithium, which is an amazing mm-hmm. medication. It does come with all of the side effects, mm-hmm. yeah. potential side effects that you talked about. So it can cause you problems with your thyroid, mm-hmm. with your kidneys. It can cause a tremor as well. If it's given in high doses, it can cause a bit of cognitive impairment. But generally what we've found over a number of decades is that it actually doesn't need to be given in big doses. Mm. That it has a sort of therapeutic window. And if you give a sort of reasonable dose that you can keep people well for a long time. Mm. It's a really good, really good drug when it's tolerated and used well and used every day. Mm. Yeah. Um, and actually... What was an astounding kind of statistic for me was looking at, there's a really big kind of meta-analysis, so a sort of study of studies mm-hmm. 10 or so years ago, which looked at the impacts of lithium and bipolar disorder. And so, astonishingly, about 15% of people with bipolar disorder take their own lives. On people who are established in lithium treatment, that rate is 80% lower. So you're looking at about wow. 3% of people. And that's just one component of it. And mm-hmm. generally, I think in bipolar disorder, because you can get a bit of stability, whilst there might be a, some ways, there might be a bit of a longing for some of the sort of higher mm-hmm. aspects of things, you can have a reasonable sort of mm-hmm. insight. I'm, I'm conscious I'm sounding very medical <laughs> and maybe a bit judgmental or something. But thinking about schizophrenia sometimes insight can be more challenging mm-hmm. because I think actually you know again if you think from the insight perspective from your brother's point of view if he doesn't so much mm-hmm. kind of agree that he has any particular kind of problems or he doesn't see the same things that you see mm-hmm. yeah. it's a quite an easy decision in his mind why mm-hmm. would he take yeah. something which mm-hmm. makes him feel sleepy mm-hmm. makes yeah. him feel groggy mm-hmm. it might make him drool it might make him sleep a lot mm-hmm. makes him put on weight as mm-hmm. a young man mm-hmm. yeah. increases his risk of diabetes mm-hmm. some of the psychotic medications that we have are quite sort of dirty medications which kind of yeah. interact with a lot of different neurotransmitter systems that we wouldn't normally wouldn't necessarily want and, and i guess some of those side effects can potentially be useful in sort of really acute illness when your brother for example is really unwell and really mm-hmm. agitated and maybe feels threatened and he, he sort of when he, yeah. you know things happened at, at home like right. you described mm-hmm. actually being a bit sedated at that time is not such a bad thing mm-hmm. but when it comes to weeks to months of that no it's one wants that right but you don't need such high doses as mm-hmm. as you get better and, and, and you stay well yeah, on the point of staying well, do you think that the mental health stigma, especially in like ethnic minority backgrounds, could be because 
with physical health, if someone has a chest problem, mm-hmm. they can go and get it fixed there and then. Yeah. Whereas with mental health, people think that this is something that is going to be part of your identity mm-hmm. for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how do you guys sort of resonate with that? Like, what are your thoughts about that? I think that's a really mm-hmm. key component about recovery and about people's perception of that and being able to separate it from someone. So mm-hmm. I, I really, I know that it's still, I have to be patient. I get quite frustrated when I hear someone say, this is a schizophrenic or because we don't say this is a chest pain. Mm-hmm. Well, some doctors do mm-hmm. yeah. when you're busy in any, but it's a person with something, mm-hmm. with an illness and mm-hmm. with a set of symptoms. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to separate the two things. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a human being mm-hmm. and a person. So I think, yeah, it does, unfortunately it becomes someone's identity Mm. um, very much and I think we need to try and think about how just how we change that and things are slowly slowly getting better but this Mm. is already a really vulnerable group of people and we need to ask ourselves as a society how do we stand up and actually say no we need to think about this we need to put a bit more effort into what we're doing for these people how we think about it and how we can sort of change things because there's yeah. that uh, that aspect of not being aware or not having that psychoeducation mm-hmm. about mental health mm-hmm. but then there's also the aspect where someone might actually recognize or have a sort of insight of actually something is not going on mentally mm-hmm. yeah. but then they're hindered to access any help mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of Definitely. not only the fact that they are accepting that they have mm-hmm. a mental health problem but mm-hmm. everything else all the narratives that are going to come with it say, so the labels yeah. the stereotypes mm-hmm. the you know the looking down on and etc etc yeah. it's is, the language isn't it like yeah. the language that we use around these kind of disorders mm-hmm. but also i think can't see this disorder in isolation like you were saying thinking mm-hmm. kind of systemically mm-hmm. the kind of staff perceptions and like the carers perceptions mm-hmm. and all of that kind of interplays into that and that mm-hmm. that itself can be a hindrance to, mm-hmm. to the care that they receive I think Helen you were talking about your GP and how mm-hmm. he, as soon as the word bipolar was mentioned he seemed really frightened by that mm-hmm. and that in itself as a, as a patient you know with that kind of that lack of confidence in a healthcare professional, but I mean, yeah, narratives. I changed my GP. And- <laughs> <laughs> well done. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the found narr- someone who's much more comfortable with so it. The, yeah. Yeah. This is really I I can't help myself but interrupt mm-hmm. because it's really it's understandable, but it's deeply kind of disappointing and. It needs to change. So not only are people vulnerable people, and I don't mean that in any sort of That's disrespect. Right. I mean yeah. that when someone is unwell, they're vulnerable. When yeah. you're having a heart attack on the mm. street, mm. you're a vulnerable mm. person mm-hmm. and you need help. Mm. Yeah, yeah. When you have a life-threatening illness, mm-hmm. um, you need help. Mm. And bipolar disorder is a life-threatening mm. illness. Yes. Mm. Yes. And so whenever you're met with that kind of approach for someone from someone who's supposed to be an advocate for your health, mm. I find it... And I, I appreciate I'm coming from a different sort of generation. Yeah. But I find it really frustrating and I find it difficult to understand and I find it difficult not to be critical of that. But being critical of it isn't of course isn't the way to try and yeah. to try and sort of change things. But this is why I was saying the importance of and this is why I kept asking about psychology, the role of psychology. And I I, I mean, don't quote me, but I don't know too much what's written in the NICE guidelines, but I think that's where psychology can be really useful in terms of sort of case formulations and discussions and really trying to keep the patient or the person at the centre of because I think all of this can be lost in terms of medical terminology which is really really important but I suppose dealing with the distress and kind of helping family 
come to terms with what you know this loved one you're seeing is completely different Mm -hmm. you know the the personality's altered and and sort of living with that Mm -hmm. so maybe not living with that but how to kind of accept that and knowing that that is a part of them Mm -hmm. I so I think but but sort of stigma as well thinking about the kind of other communities within this western society and thinking like minority groups and you know there's a higher proportion of people being diagnosed with psychosis in the black community the Mm -hmm. asian community Mm -hmm. and that's quite clearly seen especially when you go to like a and e or clinics and Mm. things i just wondered if anybody had any thoughts on that yeah i mean this is just speaking i guess on behalf of my family and the situation my brother is that i think that's why we were very hush hush because in our culture this is like this is something that is never spoken yeah. about. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is a case where, let's say, if Auntie comes to the house, how's your brother? Oh, he's fine. Mm. We were never going to dwell details you just of don't, yeah. Because it's like a kind of a shame mm. on the family, essentially. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I think with my parents, especially like my dad, who is from Nigeria okay. and raised in Nigeria, so he has this kind of like disciplined lifestyle and how life should be lived essentially and I think when this kind of this hiccup if you want to call it that comes up in our life in his in in my brother's life for example he's never dealt with something like this yeah so this is and especially if it's your child you don't know how to kind of handle it and I think it's a case where you're battling with the image of the family but then also your son's health Mm -hmm. and I think growing up it was a case where our parents was very much like don't mention this to anyone don't tell anyone this blah 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 and it just got to the point where I mean this is what you asked me earlier about how has it affected us Mm. you know it got to the point where you'd go to work or you go to school and you get really sad Mm. and then someone will ask you why are you sad and you have to just kind of refrain not saying anything you know because Mm. you don't want their judgment to come Mm. and you don't know what they're thinking so yeah and I think now that it's very much open and he's now in hospital it's now a case where we are you know as I said we're very much researching in our own in time of understanding this illness and his mental health and how us as a family can handle it so being a minority essentially is still like we we can speak about it but we won't say too much (laughs) you know that's Mm. kind of Mm. how I guess we're structured to do I think it doesn't help with like I'm thinking like social media Mm. and the movies and I suppose Mm. like terms like sectioning and admission you know admission and Mm -hmm. psychiatric hospital like they still are quite heavy terms yeah I think sometimes as clinicians we can detach ourselves from that but it's only like you said when it's a loved one that's been affected by it and it kind of completely changes your outlook and you just you know I'm trying to think if that this was happening to my sibling how I would react to that and Um, also let's not forget that the people with mental health problems have been the most you know, stigmatized, criminalized, yeah. discriminated mm-hmm. upon, etc. And I think it's even very powerful to mm-hmm. hear you guys today just mm-hmm. sharing your stories and experiences yeah. in mental health because I think like there is a lot of power and I think people even misunderstand the fact that for someone to access or engage mm-hmm. in any sort of in- psychiatric intervention, mm-hmm. that's power in itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's something people never see it mm. that, that way. I find it quite encouraging as well, mm-hmm. the fact that you spoke about research, mm-hmm. because mm. I think it's so important to have that education about illnesses and maybe even mm-hmm. alternative therapies that are available mm-hmm. 
to people because I think, yes, there is medicine, yes, there is psychotherapy, but there's also other avenues that you can explore and it's not just an end of a journey Mm. for someone. And coming from a sort of research background, I'd be quite interested to know, James, sort of what your perspective is on alternative therapies because I actually attended a meeting today which was about looking into virtual reality in order to reduce paranoid beliefs in Mm. people with psychosis. And it was quite an experience for myself because I was able to try the virtual reality equipment and sort of immerse myself in what they would experience Mm -hmm. and that was quite scary is is this avatar therapy is that it i was thinking of that one as well because there there are lots of ideas around this and actually Mm. it's 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 an amazing concept that Mm. you can work through how you would so for example someone without a psychotic illness can experience some of the things that it might be like in the sort of construct of virtual reality mm. but actually for people with an illness who are experiencing auditory hallucinations or different sort of beliefs mm. and delusions that they can rehearse things and practice how they might go through something in a social situation mm. and so there's there is sort of emerging evidence coming out about these sorts of things so mm. um, I wouldn't alternative therapy is a really interesting kind of terminology it's, it's a therapy and I think like I said earlier that kind of biopsychosocial model where the biological aspect of treatment the psychological aspect and the social aspects are incredibly important and I don't know which one has more importance mm. I think if I'm honest from a medical point of view when someone is acutely unwell and they are for example in the depths of a psychotic illness with a catatonia and they can't move and there are various kind of different features that they can have which I wouldn't go into but when someone doesn't move and doesn't communicate and doesn't eat or drink then you're looking at intramuscular sort of treatment you're looking at ECT and those are the things that work so in that sort of Mm. setting of acute Mm. illness I don't know about those things but in the in the sort of context of the wider kind of picture of recovery keeping someone well and when they're able to communicate and things when they come out of the the depths of that illness for want of a better term those things are really important and actually they're really important for family as well while someone is unwell to understand someone and kind of also staff team as well yeah for the support absolutely and a a hugely sort of important aspect of psychosis treatment at the minute is early intervention and a big part of that is family therapy Mm. and talking sort of relatives through what someone might be but you know the intramuscular and the ect of Mm. course that's not done in isolation it's a decision made by many medical staff isn't it? it's not like it's not like it's made but what i'm saying is that because they're quite high Mm -hmm. end of treatments they're not so again this is something which comes down to it's a really complex thing and at the moment with this is sort of we're working on the basis of the mental health act that's what we're talking about so when n talked earlier about basically her brother at home trying to engage with one of the teams which sounded maybe like a home treatment team yeah sounded like that was a really good option to try and see how someone is in their home environment and try Mm. and get them to get medication sometimes with a bit of medication there you can develop a bit of insight and Mm -hmm. the hallucinations drop a bit and and you can get someone better and you can avoid hospital admission but within the mental health act it is written that you have to sort of try least restrictive options first so it's really frustrating Mm -hmm. as a as a family member to spend weeks on end saying someone in a 
terrible state that they've been in for years and that it's acutely sort of worse for the last few weeks and your parents are up all night watching and no one's getting any sleep and people are tearing their hair out. But when you're talking about removing someone from their home and their liberty and potentially taking them into hospital and injecting medications against their will, Mm. then every single avenue needs to be Mm. explored beforehand to see if that can be done another way yeah because it's incredibly traumatic it's really destructive of a relationship with with a mental health team Mm -hmm. and forms huge barriers for the future Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's necessary Mm -hmm. and sometimes people thank you for it like when Um, you said like other avenues like what avenues would you suggest if this Mm-hmm. wasn't an option so i guess the closest thing to that we have at the moment mm-hmm. to a hospital admission well we have a hospital admission kind of mm-hmm. under the mental health act yeah. and then we have hospital admissions which are voluntary and then sort of the closest thing that we have outside of that is a home treatment team which is an attempt at having some sort of acute kind of crisis or hospital care within your home environment mm-hmm. and that's a fantastic idea and it works for a lot of a lot of people Mm. sometimes at both ends so sometimes to keep you out of hospital or sometimes when you come out of hospital you might need home treatment see but like the problem with that is like where we live he's Mm. kind of around people that trigger him so he has these friends that provide him like whatever he takes drugs or you know or they just take advantage of him Mm. so it's Mm. kind of like that it's it's weird because it's like in a way of him being in hospital not only is he obviously under the medical treatment but we as a family see that as him being away from like his vices so his his friends dealers or whoever because it's kind of like in a way, buying us time to figure out what we can do. Okay. Because my mum, she's really keen to, like, find a new place somewhere. Really? Yeah, like, that. Like this is literally affecting all of us in a mm. way where we're all having... We're probably going to have to move mm. to get away from those friends that mm. trigger him mm-hmm. because he's all good and saying, yeah, I feel better now, I'm ready. But as soon as he gets back, it's mm. going to go back to square one. And Which is why I think psychology is so important because mm. it sounds for him, it's there's also a level of building resilience right? so that he doesn't... I mean, obviously, I think, I don't know what the, the sort of the rate is, but mm. in terms of smoking weed or relying on drugs is, right. a, is a coping strategy. Yeah. And, and it's probably stuck in a vicious cycle where he probably feels that I need to smoke more of it in yeah. order to whatever the, mm. the following effect would be. Mm-hmm. Which is why it's like, I quite like the toolbox analogy, this okay. idea of building that resilience and finding those tools so he can handle the life stresses. Yeah. I don't know if he goes back to uni and if that was a trigger for him. Yeah. That he knows that he has the capability within him mm-hmm. to, to resort to another coping strategy. He right. doesn't need weed to he doesn't need to rely on that. Right. Are um, you thinking of cognitive behavioural therapy as just the sort of thing you're thinking of? C B T. Yeah, I mean I have a very uh, personal view on C B T. But I, I sort of mean in, in terms of there's different models that we use for psychosis treatment and it really does depend on what level the patient might be at so if it's something if they're really holding on to delusional beliefs we would be kind of rolling with the resistance and there is a different model that we use to to kind of treat with that but I can't remember off the top of my head I think it was proposed by Philip Garrity one of the uh, psychologists I think a lot of the techniques are about kind of building resilience doing motivational interviewing and if it's religion that they rely on then how do we work with religion how do we use religion in this so I suppose it's really pulling out those coping strategies and kind of getting people to find ways that 
you don't have to rely on the weed. Mm. You don't need to rely on whatever else they might be relying on and, and getting them to see those kind of unhelpful behaviors and the mm. vicious cycles they get stuck in. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really important as a clinician to not go in head first and be challenging and saying mm. that's wrong or mm. even if you feel that it is wrong or saying, you know, well, actually, that's not true. They're not going to believe that because right. they're in a completely different state mm. of mind, yeah. which is why I'm so, I mean, obviously, we're more psychologically minded, but I suppose that's why I'm really keen to kind of, I'd hate to think, like you said, I've seen an acute setting Mm-hmm. psychology would take a bit of a backseat until the person's become more stabilized mm. but I think psychology really has a role for, like I was saying for staff members providing reflective space because obviously lots of patients will evoke many feelings in people and maybe there's that feeling of hopelessness mm. that you might be getting like I'm not getting anywhere with them they might be saying really negative critical comments then some patients can be racist some mm-hmm. all sorts of things can come up but also case formulation so that can be really helpful for, for sort of staff members to hold that patient at the center of, mm-hmm. of the care that they provide but it's also when that patient then becomes at a certain stage then to intervene and in helping with the distress mm-hmm. and I think it works quite nicely when psychiatrists and psychologists can get alongside one another and kind of helping it provides a holistic care and it's nice to kind of get the family on board and the staff mm-hmm. members on board and I think that's probably what is mm-hmm. better treatment I agree entirely has, just... has your brother rejected the family faith has he gone back on that do you um, think it's funny because we got him a bible and he's actually reading the bible so prior to that though he was kind of I remember he had a conversation with my dad and said that I think he's losing his faith Mm. and I think him being now in a hospital I think because he he keeps himself very much in his room so he pretty much reads mostly the Mm. bible Mm. I mean he throws a lot of quotes (laughs) a lot Mm. of bible quotes to me Mm. and I guess that's time for him to reflect in some way but yeah. I suppose what, as we're hearing, I'm kind of throwing it out to Giles there. Obviously, all of our other podcasts, we've done it on different things, but like hearing today, any like thoughts or reflections? Anything that com- com- comes out to you guys? I think it's been very insightful hearing all of your points of views, especially because being from more of a research background, mm. all I have access to is just asking you know questions for a study and it's just very baseline questions you don't actually get to know the insights of a person because you only have a, yeah. a certain amount of time with that person right. so it's been really insightful to hear you know it's quite encouraging as well to yeah. hear of your story Helen and how you've been able to recover from your yeah. episode and there's a lot of protective factors as well that you found have helped you so it's very very inspiring and encouraging i'm i'm really really captivated and i feel so compelled listening to you guys today and you dr james i think working on an in working in patient services as well as community ones but mainly in patient where you see i was always intrigued as to if this patient comes in and then he's reporting that their parents and their grandparents all had like mental health problems i was always like a psychiatry or psychology doing enough to sort of break this cycle are we doing enough to support people because it's yeah. it sometimes sometimes it feels like it's sort of a legacy mm, within a right. family and i think that question came back to me today helen when you mentioned about your sons calling you mad mom i think that's when i think that question came back today Definitely. and it's just a question i've just packed there yeah. i don't know if it's like a right question to ask right or it's a question i can maybe also kind of paraphrase or change the way i kind of look at yeah. think about things now but 
thank you for that yeah. uh, sharing your powerful experience and and I think another thing was also most of the time you'll find that you're working with families who unfortunately don't really know much about mental health and yeah. sometimes you find like you're hitting brick walls with them so for example once I was asked the apparent of one of the people I was looking after did ask me that. What does Motley stand for? Mm-hmm. It stands for mad people. And I mean, that really, really hit me far because mm-hmm. I'm thinking, wow. Mm-hmm. So before we even talk about the diagnosis and the admission, we yeah. have to even think about the wording and the terminology mm-hmm. and the way that you present whatever it is you're presenting yeah. to these families. And again, it's about, you know, it just really challenged me in a way with that. You have to work so hard to really, not that you're painting mental health in a positive way. Actually, yeah. why not? In a positive way, it's the way you would break your arm or, I don't know, have pneumonia or whatever. Yeah. It's just that it's something that we have to deal with. But we have to also think about ways of how to better understand and manage it on every single level. So, for example, organizational level, you know, influencing policymakers on a societal level, on an individual level, you know, whether it's even in the religious side of things, Mm. political side of things. And those are sort of the things that have always been on my mind. And I really appreciate you guys sharing. And Dr. James, thank you for letting us pick your brains. (laughs) (laughs) So I I feel like in this sense, like diagnosis can be really helpful. Uh, I suppose this is a thing that came to my mind. And obviously we've talked about holistic care and treatment. I think the only kind of fear that I have is people that may fall through cracks, which happen in the system. And they, you know, you hear some horrific stories where they've had such extremely they've been treated absolutely awfully in inpatient settings and I think as a loved one to be watching that happen or you know feeling quite helpless and maybe sort of lack of communication with between health professionals I think that's one of my fears the other one is sort of teasing out okay this is this is X and this is X's altered personality. And I just feel like I wonder if sometimes a diagnosis, everything gets filtered through a lens. So if something is part of their personality, we're not able to appreciate that anymore. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, but you know, to being on the other side, what's that like? So, you know, your brother saying, mm-hmm. I love writing lyrics and, mm-hmm. you know, that's probably quite cathartic for him. Right. But then we're probably seeing everything through a certain lens, right? Okay, well, he's writing so many lyrics now. Mm-hmm. Is he having a manic episode? Is he having this? Which yeah. probably he might be. But mm-hmm. I, I think that's one fear that I have and that's why mm-hmm. I always kind of maybe pre-morbid personality maybe that's the mm-hmm. correct word to use yeah the other kind of question that I had was posing to both of you mm-hmm. ladies is if you were to make any suggestions it could be anything thinking about improvements whether that's to the service or reflecting on the experiences that you've had is there anything that you wish you would have known or should have happened I just think that first admission in what was then Rhodesia was unfortunate and the, yeah. the hospital is now closed but I think after that I've been lucky enough to have superb treatment I mean to have Dr. Wettersing in New Zealand looking (laughs) after me for 30 years as both an inpatient and an outpatient I mean you couldn't have anything better could you that continuity that consistency and then now I have a because there is such a high incidence of bipolar in our family I am kept on the books of the outpatient department and I have an automatic six-monthly appointment Mm. but being on the books means that should I require help suddenly I might be able to access it within four 
hours mm. instead wow. of having to wait five weeks for an appointment with my GP mm. and possibly another six weeks for... Or present to A&E, which is probably... Yeah, that, that's right. That's not right. helpful. Mm. No. Yeah, I mean, I guess I wish there was more of like a quicker way to kind of help the situation. Right. I think initially when your family trying to explain to like like the ambulance or the doctor whoever that my son is not well this is why and they kind of see him and they can say oh no he's fine but then I I, you know obviously I get that they have to get an idea of his symptoms and things Mm. like that but I think it's a case where if we as a family see things that he is probably unaware of it would be nice for them to take our word as well because I feel Mm. like it's so easy to listen to what the patient has to say which is the right thing to do but as well as that there should be more I guess follow up with more of the family because it's that balance yeah exactly to help diagnose Mm. the the illness quicker Mm. because it Mm. took four years for him to finally go to hospital Mm. if he had gone sooner I don't know what would have happened but I think he wouldn't be in the situation Mm. as deep as he is now Mm. what about yourself sort of reflecting back on on process for you yeah. and that kind of journey is there anything that you would recommend or if like I suppose I'm thinking yeah. about the listeners or is there anything that you wished you would have known I wish um it wouldn't feel wrong to talk about mental health mm. I think yeah. especially being a black woman I mm. don't want to always feel ashamed bringing it up Completely. whether it's in my culture or just around general people I wish there was no stigma against it because right. it's like what you mm. said with the narrative of the mad mum or mm. you know I think when you hear that then there's that attachment to it you know yeah, I think there should be more see how like you mentioned with any lifelong illness or any physical illness how we see that as vulnerable we should look at mental health as also the same thing because Completely. it's a case where someone needs help it's not always thinking oh they're crazy <laughs> you know what I mean mm-hmm. so I, I feel like I wish the stigma of that would change I think it's interesting mm. you mentioned about like oh they're crazy it mm. really kind of singles that person out and Absolutely. we kind of forget that we're not mm. born in a vacuum you know yeah. everything contributes to that Yeah. I'm looking at you Dr James any thoughts or reflections? So many but hopefully there will be other opportunities I mean Definitely. just very briefly there are so yeah, many topics to talk about mm. cannabis and psychosis is a fascinating topic addiction in itself is a slightly separate thing with substance misuse even Good how point. we look at that um, and our models of that are sadly I think quite skewed and not particularly useful at the moment and I will very quickly mention an amazing TED mm. talk that I've watched by someone called Johan Harry and I don't know if we can put a link to it on yeah, we'll do social it on Instagram. media yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's just a really interesting look at some of the draws to substance use and maybe how we look at it now and there's some really interesting rat models that they mm, use and yeah. it's concept of rat mm-hmm. park and how rats yeah. with uh, in rat park when they're yeah. given the option of water or uh, water with heroin, heroin or cocaine mm-hmm. in it where they have loads of different toys the and they rat. can have loads of sex and things and there was no addiction in those rats that have rat right. park available to them no overdose but would you put them in a cage with two bottles of water that pretty much every rat sort of dies wow. so perhaps we're thinking about substance use in the wrong way so that's one sort of fascinating area the area of race and prejudice on top of prejudice mm-hmm. on top of prejudice mm-hmm. i don't know i feel very it's not my position to feel uncomfortable so i even feel bad yeah, about feeling it. uncomfortable yeah, about it because mm-hmm. it's such you know we're in london which is the psychosis capital of the world there's huge mm-hmm. amounts of immigration yeah. young caribbean males particularly mm-hmm. are prejudiced in many ways there's sort of opportunities for these 
young men, I'm just mentioning a particular mm-hmm. group, yeah. are in some ways quite severely limited in people's perception of them just because they have a hood up. Mm-hmm. You know, it, there's lots of sort of disappointing well, yeah, kind of things going on there. And when you take that, mm-hmm. there are different reasons why someone in that instance can be susceptible right. to mental illness if you look at stress vulnerability models. And various other things, but there is a huge component of prejudice, huge component of misunderstanding from mm. mental health, and not taking things within a cultural kind of construct as well. So that's something mm-hmm. we need to look at. But I kind of just wanted to go through why I think this topic of psychosis and even mental yeah. illness in general is so important. First and foremost, because it's absolutely fascinating and it's so complex. It's really common. One in yeah. sort of twenty-five people. That's quite a common sort mm-hmm. of disorder. And so you think that if it was that common, I get that it's quite complex, but that we might have a better understanding of it, but we don't. We don't yeah. It's really poorly understood. It's getting better, but I think, like F said, you know, are, are we doing enough? And we're here trying to talk about it. We've got to ask ourselves that as well. Are we doing enough? Yeah, Everyone absolutely. is responsible for this. And so, you know, this is you know, slightly being one side. I'm going to talk about young men, you know, that suicide, for example, which is mm. has a, a huge sort of correlation with psychosis, mm. is the biggest killer in young men. So this is, is something that we need to stand up and you know, again, pay attention to. Not talked about um, as much. It's a life threatening illness. And so it's really important and I think it can be it can be a hugely positive area. So watching someone's journey through that, how much you can learn about life and how to mm, yeah. help other people, which you get an incredible amount of satisfaction from helping someone else mm. person to helping yourself. Mm. And these disorders are treatable. I mean, we talked about lithium and its effects on and um, just on suicide, and that's just one aspect of things. Mm. And then we're looking at this new concept of early intervention within yeah. um, mental health, but mm. particularly within psychosis, and that's my one of my passions, because it's so important to get someone early, get the family early before damage is done, and both yeah. sort of within the family setting, but also within the brain, and how repeated episodes of psychosis can increase your risk of, you know, more episodes in the future and so much to talk about mm. but I think I'm, I just want to finish yeah. with these I guess madness is understandable if we think about it mm-hmm. yeah. and that yeah. it's treatable and, mm. and we can do so much more and we have to ask ourselves are we doing enough and I guess the one kind of thing that I wanted to finish on is that it's okay it's yeah. fine to be unwell yeah. that we're human beings I think we often forget that in modern society when we're seen as yeah. income creators <laughs> actually know we're human beings and it's okay mm. not, not to be not okay. To be okay mm. And if I could get someone, just one person, to listen to that, I would be delighted. Yeah. At my age, I'm left with a question. You know, I have lived my three score years and ten. I have a living will because I don't want to have my life prolonged and this sort of thing. But I think that anyone approaching me with a serious illness would say, oh, she's depressed mm. and wouldn't know that all my life I have felt this and I don't know how one gets that through to people (laughs) and I think it's very normalizing and validating sort of hearing both of your experiences but also from you Dr James as well that it's actually okay not to be okay Mm. and like you said madness is understandable there's a very validating word and I just want to thank everyone in the room and for any of our listeners if anything's resonated with you guys please get in touch with us dm us drop us a comment I know we've talked a lot about here and if anything 
you know, understandably something might be quite distressing, please do look after yourselves, get in touch with your GP, talk to your loved ones. But yeah, get in touch with us, interact with us. And I just want to thank Helen for sharing your experiences with us. It was very humbling and very heartwarming and all the poems that you shared with us and you really kind of took us on that journey with you and, and we're very grateful for that thank you for allowing me to no it's our pleasure and Anne as well thank you for taking the time out to tell us about your brother's experience and I guess mm. everyone in the room is really rooting for him and really thank trying to you. Mm. you know hoping that he gets well and finds himself and gets that resilience and whatever that. he needs and you Dr James thank you for sharing your personal experiences and sort of the medical viewpoint and you know allowing us to hold very different perspectives in mind so and that's not always easy so thank you for sort of sharing that with us and taking the time out to join us pleasure I'm my passion yeah absolutely and like you said if even if it touches one listener even if it gets through to one person that's a huge achievement make sure to look out for us on instagram it's just not that deep podcast and we also have an email address which is it's just not that deep at gmail.com and on that note it's, it's just, just not, not that, that deep, deep boy, boy. <laughs>